0: Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon.com Slash truce Podcast. This episode is part of a long series on how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian Church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season 3. Almost half of the nation's banks shut down. 11,000 of them just went out of business. Millions of people lost their jobs. In Toledo, Ohio, unemployment reached 80%. Families waited for food in breadlines. I'm talking, of course, about the Great Depression. People were afraid, like really afraid. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt challenged their fear with one of the greatest phrases spoken by a president.
1: Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is Fear itself.
0: It was March 4th, 1933. The nation was three years into the Depression. Crowds gathered together in Washington, D.C. to hear him deliver his first inaugural address.
1: A host of unemployed citizens faced the grim problem of existence and an equally great number toiled with little return. Only a foolish optimist
0: can deny the dark realities of the moment. Listen to the speech, to the words spoken by Roosevelt. What was he referencing?
1: We are stricken by no plague of locusts. Practices of the unscrupulous money changers stand indicted in the court of public opinion, rejected by the hearts and minds of men.
0: It doesn't take a trained ear to hear it. FDR referenced scripture, plagues of locusts, money changers. I mean, come on. So much scripture, in fact, that the National Bible Press published a chart listing specific verses. When the New Deal launched, liberal clergymen said that it was the Christian thing to do. Give money and jobs to the poor. Help people in need. This was the logical idea for a guy like Roosevelt who believed in the social gospel. That is a key element. The New Deal was the logical outworking of the social gospel, which we covered in our episode about the Pledge of Allegiance, if you need a refresher. It's the idea that we can and should do our best to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. It was a popular concept in the 1800s and early 1900s. The social gospel came in direct conflict with libertarian free market ideas that government should be limited. Opponents of the New Deal, and we'll get into them in future episodes, saw the New Deal as government overreach, as creeping socialism in a time when tensions with communist Russia were really heating up. Opposition to the New Deal helped to shape the argument that the United States is a Christian nation. If people's anxiety about these programs helped to bring us to our modern understanding of Christianity and politics, we should probably know what the New Deal was. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Darren, and this is Truce. Certain themes reoccur all the time in human life. One such theme is outbreaks of disease. I mean, it's true. They happen fairly frequently. Not always in the US, but certainly in the world as a whole. Another theme is the rise and fall of religious affiliation. We don't like the idea that, even in the U.S., a supposedly Christian nation, it's fairly normal to have dips in the number of people who claim the Christian faith. While the Christian church of today is losing numbers, we're still doing better than we were in 1910. We always want to look back and think that the good old days were better for religion. The third theme that reoccurs in human life? Economic downturns recessions, and depressions. I bring this up because we're surprised by all three of these things. We gnash our teeth and wonder how this could happen. But as difficult as it is to go through them, outbreaks, loss of religious faith, and economic downturns are all par for the course in human existence. The Great Depression, of course, was really bad. So it called for a massive response. We got it in the form of the New Deal. Since it's so big and complicated, I thought, who better to explain a massive concept in a short amount of time than a high school history teacher?
2: My name is Justin Rosalino. I am a uh, history teacher and school administrator.
0: He's out of Waco, Texas. He's also the author of the book, Idiot Sojourning Soul. Part philosophy, part history, part story of coming back to faith. It's aimed at people who are frustrated with Christianity. Okay, so the Great Depression began in 1929.
2: If your listeners remember the musical Annie. From which we get the songs Hard Knock Life and Tomorrow. Someday,
0: we'll have a music budget and I'll play them. But we're not there yet.
2: Uh, There's a lot of discussion in that in that play of uh, Hoovervilles, which were like, literally like tent villages. These shanty towns, the
0: Hoovervilles, were named for the then-president Herbert Hoover, who gets the short end of the historic stick by being seen as a purely laissez-faire, the market will take care of this depression, kind of guy. It's not totally true. But that impression made it seem like Herbert Hoover was a bit hands-off. So, People named shantytowns after him.
2: Constructed by people who, many of whom were middle or upper class, who had lost their jobs, were unemployed, had no source of relief. Before the Great Depression, there was no
0: social safety net. If you got hurt on the job, too bad. You were too old to work, too bad. A virus swept through and put you out of work? You guessed it too bad. It wasn't just previously poor people who ended up in Hoovervilles. It was middle-class people, too.
2: I remember as a little kid talking to my grandmother who uh, lived in the Bronx during that period. And she said she had these memories of basically living on onion soup, so they were able to grow onions in their little front yard of, um, you know, this little uh, decrepit apartment in the Bronx, and uh, literally just chop up onions in boiled water, maybe with some salt and pepper, and that would be their breakfast and dinner. I mean, that kind of encapsulates the Depression. One of
0: the defining characteristics of the Great Depression was the run on the banks meaning that when people saw that stuff was about to hit the fan, they ran and pulled their money out of the banks. Now, you remember this from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Trouble is, money doesn't stay in banks. It gets used to build houses, start businesses, buy cars. Banks make money by loans. If the money is loaned to people and then a crowd marches in and demands their cash— there's not going to be enough there to dole out. Then the bank goes out of business. With people out of work eating onion flavored water, a lot of people died and many
2: from suicide. In such a bleak situation. Many people embraced the New Deal, which was essentially a collection, a massive collection of pretty drastic government programs that were aimed at getting the country out of the Depression, or at least providing significant relief. It's definitely best to understand the New Deal as a response to the Great Depression, much like the recent stimulus plan, actually, is a response to the coronavirus pandemic. See? History repeats itself. Enter FDR, who, unlike the caricature
0: of Hoover proved to be very hands-on. FDR, being
2: a part of the social gospel movement, thought that the government should take care of its people. He was trying to reform the economy, the banking system, etc., by creating a sense of long-term security for um, all Americans, including the most vulnerable. To be clear also, the New Deal came
0: about by acts of Congress, which were signed by Roosevelt. FDR often gets the credit for them, but it's Congress who did the heavy lifting. In the process, they created a boatload of new government agencies. Now part of me wants to give each agency their own episode because they are fascinating, but I also want to maintain an audience.
2: It's a rookie mistake, I feel like, that every high school history teacher has to make. It's almost a rite of passage where you try and teach all the agencies. Don't worry, we're not going to cover all of them, but we're going to highlight some. To spice
0: it up, I created the New Deal Bike Tour. 50 miles of biking through western Wyoming to see the New Deal in action. Which means getting my bike... Tuned up. First thing to check, of course, is if the bell's working. And checking the tire pressure. So FDR takes the office of president and thus begins the first hundred days. Before I even left my apartment, there was something I needed to check. I just need to check one thing and Yes, in fact, I am completely sober, (laughs) Uh, not just because I am always sober, but also in honor of the Beer and Wine Revenue Act from March 22nd, 1933. Now, FDR was not a fan of prohibition, and so he legalized the sale of beer and wine with the alcohol content of 3.2% or less. And so in honor of that, I'm gonna do this whole thing completely sober. With my sobriety confirmed, it was time to start this bike tour. I did my best to balance on a road bike while holding my audio gear and trying to navigate loose gravel. If you think that was precarious, you should have seen the banking system during the Great Depression.
2: Right out of the gates in 1933, FDR and Congress got to work. And uh, one of the first things he did was regulate banking.
0: Because the Great Depression was the result in
2: part of bad banking practices. By the time of FDR's inauguration, many banks had already closed because he's this is several years into a miserable Great Depression. So a lot of banks were already closed. Others had a maximum withdrawal of 5% was their policy. So if you had a hundred dollars in a bank account, like if you're a working stiff and that's what you had, you can't get your hundred bucks. You can at maximum withdraw five. Bringing me to my local bank.
0: Okay. So here I am at the corner of cash and Pearl Avenue at my friendly local bank. At the first stop
2: on the New Deal bike tour. He immediately ordered all banks closed for a four-day national bank holiday and called Congress into a special session. The
0: banks reopened, but this time it was under the government's supervision. They had to restore confidence in banking so people would put their money back in banks instead
2: of in coffee cans buried somewhere in their yard or under their mattress. Congress also passed the Glass Steagall. Act, okay? Glass-Steagall, and this is a hot topic still today and a controversial subject. Glass-Steagall separated investment banks from commercial banks. Which stopped banks from using your deposited money, which was like uh, your
0: the money that you put in for your savings or your checking account. They could no longer use that money for risky bets. Um, so it also created the FDIC, which is one of my favorite things about the United States. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I was not joking. I really love it. And you know, the reason I love it is that if somebody were to walk into this bank and rob it, uh, which is probably what it looks like I'm going to do with all this gear on. Uh, if somebody were to go in to rob it in the old days, your money was just gone when they took it. You, you didn't get your money back. Or if there was a run on the bank, then your money just vanished. But now you can deposit in modern day terms up to $250,000 into this bank and know that it's gonna be there for you because the government is insuring it. That is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. In fact, in most banks, you can find a sticker or a placard that says FDIC insured. Glass-Steagall, like
2: several parts of the New Deal, didn't last forever. When Glass-Steagall was repealed, which was in 1999. The problem, some would say, is that investors were freed up again to make highly risky speculative investments with monies or funds that were privately held. Some people
0: see the repeal of Glass-Steagall as one of the reasons for the Great Recession, the financial crisis in 2008 because now banks were able to use deposited funds for risky bets. As important as the banking reforms were, Congress and FDR pushed 15 bills through in the first hundred days. So I had to get this bike tour moving. I still had about 49 miles
2: to cover. The results of those hundred days and onward are are often referred to as alphabet soup because you got so many new agencies with with nifty acronyms that are hard to memorize
0: next stop mike yokel park it is the site of the first electrical generation facility in the whole valley built in 1921 they dammed up cache creek and ran power uh, for parts of the town which is pretty incredible right here this is not part of the new deal like i said that dam was built in 1921 well before the new deal but I came here anyway to tell you about the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, which is a uh, hydroelectric company that was run by the United States government. It dammed up rivers, it stopped flooding, uh, and then it competed with electrical companies like commercial electrical companies. And that's why some people didn't like it very much because it was competing with private businesses. And it's actually still around today. And so it's one of those reasons that people may not like the New Deal. And of course, I picked, you know, the hour of the week where they're cutting the grass. That's the TVA. But our bike tour was just getting started. I got on my bike and headed for Grand Teton National Park to experience the work of the CCC. This is by far the best stop on our tour. Uh, I am at the south end of Jenny Lake in Grand Teton National Park, and this is the site of one of the Civilian Conservation Corps work camps. In fact, uh, from where I'm standing, I can still see one of the buildings that uh, they used as a bathhouse. It's now being used by the Exum Mountain Guides. Uh, So the Civilian Conservation Corps, what did they do? Uh, Well, it was a bunch of young men, and it was just men, and they came out here during the Great Depression as part of the New Deal. And they built things like bridges and roads and trails, campgrounds that you can still use today. You can imagine how amazing it must have been to be here on this lake and to be working out in the sunshine when you could be starving or standing in a bread line. That's an amazing opportunity that was created by the New Deal. If you want to see pictures of the lake, which you really should, it's a beautiful day, you can go to the website at trucepodcast.com or, of course, follow us on Instagram and you'll see the pictures there. For now, I will let the sounds of the water provide a little background.
2: Another related project was the PWA, or Public Works Administration. They spent billions on projects like the Lincoln Tunnel and Triborough Bridge in New York City. That's near and dear to my heart because I'm from New York. They also tackled the Hoover Dam, that icon not far from Las Vegas,
0: which by the way, also generates electricity. The next stop on our trip, the outside of a random house. I've stopped outside of a random house here and (laughs) in order to tell you about the June 28th, 1934 National Housing Act, which set up the FHA or the Federal Housing Administration.
2: I bought my first house through an FHA loan. Um, The New Deal also created the Home Owners Loan Corporation or HOLC. Before the New Deal, it's really important to understand that it was exceedingly difficult to own a home as an average working class American. Okay, only 40% of Americans owned homes prior to the New Deal. Why? Why do I say that it was so difficult? Well, because buying a home required a large down payment, at least around 30%. Mortgages were short often five years. 10 years would be a, long, a, a long-term a long mortgage by pre-New Deal standards and high interest rates as well, 8% or more. This act of Congress created the 30-year mortgage, that staple
0: of home ownership that we take for granted today. It also allowed people to refinance their existing loans if they were struggling with payments. Well, I'm gonna use this opportunity to take a little bit of a lunch break, sitting here next to Jenny Lake in Grand Teton National Park. And uh, when we come back, we will continue talking about the New Deal. Stay with us.
1: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: We left off talking about the PWA and the New Deal. Historians often divide the New Deal into two parts, the New Deal and the Second New Deal. I mean, it's pretty clever, right? The Public Works Administration, or PWA, was not to be confused with the WPA, the Works Progress Administration.
2: They hired people for enormous building projects that included 25,000 hospitals, 5,000 airports, and over 10,000 playgrounds. So that's the WPA. They also, this is a little bit unique, they hired 40,000 artists to produce everything from music to sculptures, paintings, murals, um, theatrical productions. So it's sort of a culture building agency.
0: I'm on front of the Center for the Arts, which is our big theater and dancing and art complex here in Jackson, Wyoming. In front of me is a work of public art. It's basically a bunch of boards put up so that they form a circle almost actually it looks a lot like an apple slicer if you've ever seen one of those (laughs) where you push down on the apple slicer and it cores the apple and you get slices it looks like that but in wood this work of art is a kind of a uh, controversial bit of conversation here in town uh, because what what is it first of all (laughs) why does it need to exist and then of course you know it kind of ruins one of the great fields to play sports here in town. Well, it is a work of public art, and that's something that the Works Progress Administration was in charge of. They hired artists to build works of art. Now, not this work of art, of course, but other works of art. And as you can imagine, as some might be upset here in town that public funds would go to, you know, fund this apple slicer here in the middle of a field, People were also upset that art was being funded with government money during a depression. Depends on your ideas about the value of the arts, right? Now we're going to get into some of the most beloved parts of this big sweeping program. The next stop on our journey, the unemployment office. A rundown blue wooden building right next door to our local knitting shop. I am outside of the Wyoming Workforce Services Office. So, unemployment is this opportunity for you to have a little income while you're waiting for your next job. This was a part of the New Deal. Before this, if you were out of work, you were out of luck. You know, you had to rely on your family and friends to get you by, or you had to move somewhere to get a job. Now, with the New Deal providing unemployment insurance, it bought you a little bit of time.
2: Also, the uh, creation of an old age pension program or old age pension plan was an important part of the New Deal. So back in the day, the average American basically, if you were working class, you worked until you either died or were fired without having any kind of pension or retirement plan. And you could be fired just for being too old to do your job if it was a physically demanding job. Americans were living a little longer. How could you be supported
0: financially if you were too old to work? Next stop on my bike tour? My day job at the bus barn. I drive a school bus when I'm not podcasting, so I took a seat there to celebrate July 31st, 1938, and the introduction of the Fair Labor Standards Act. It created the 40-hour work week, outlawed child labor, and set a minimum wage this act while it didn't do away with poverty and all the problems in the workplace set a new standard before this child labor was rampant employers could pay their staff whatever they liked we didn't have time to get into every part of the new deal the important thing is that you can see how much of modern america is owed to this legislation Some of it has been overturned, but we still have the FDIC, a 40-hour work week, the 30-year mortgage, hiking trails, roads, and bridges. Yet, the New Deal is not without its issues. First of all, while it alleviated some of the suffering caused by the Great Depression, it did not end the Depression. World War II did. Then, there were the critics.
2: Including some radical leftists who thought the New Deal maybe didn't go far enough. There was uh, Huey Long, who was a really popular politician from Louisiana, who popularized the phrase, share the wealth. So he wanted to tax the rich, redistribute the wealth, and kind of have a cap or an absolute maximum on what an American could earn. That was kind of a more radical a far left platform than, than FDR. Conservatives, obviously, fiscal conservatives were critical as well. I mean, here you have a president who is really ballooning the size of the federal government. I mean, if you were a fiscal conservative or a libertarian, your head was probably
0: ready to explode. The TVA competed against power companies. The Fair Labor Standards Act set up a minimum wage, something that some believed the market should account for. The federal government became the country's largest employer. We also spent a lot of money that we didn't have, growing the deficit.
2: Under the New Deal, Congress and FDR were really influenced by the thought of an economist, a British economist named John Maynard Keynes was a brilliant guy, but very controversial because he advocated deficit spending. He said that the cure for economic depression or recession was not tightening your belt and balancing the budget and spending less, but deliberate deficit spending in order to stimulate economic activity. Okay, so that's very counterintuitive. It's not commonsensical and it's controversial. Keynesian spending is still around today. Look at the recent stimulus
0: package under President Trump and a similar one under President Obama.
2: By deficit spending, spending money you in effect don't have, you're able to employ people, improve the country and potentially provide new and better goods at higher prices that can be purchased by people who now have jobs. Controversial stuff for sure.
0: Fiscal conservatives and libertarians get riled up about this kind of spending. They might say, what business does the government have in regulating banks? Sure, they cause the market to crash every few years. And by few, I mean like every three to eight years. But shouldn't those private businesses be allowed to fail? and take
2: their customers' money with them? A lot of historians and economists will point at FDR and look back at the New Deal and say, that was a watershed moment, a key moment, when Americans really acquired a new bad habit of relying on the federal government to create jobs, to take care of their problems, right? That's a popular criticism you know in fairness it did sort of transform the relationship between the federal government and the american people the idea that the federal government would intervene that significantly and fix the problems of society that was not a given in ages past or, or prior to the new deal right and and now quite a few americans do Think of the government in those kind of terms, right? That the government will kind of look out for our well-being and it's kind of the government's responsibility. As opposed to, say, a libertarian who imagines the role of the federal government as doing as little as it can.
0: These concerns were especially real in the 1930s and 40s. The Soviets were in the middle of brutal persecution of their own people. And they were a collectivist country where the government was involved in every part of daily life. Was the U.S. heading towards a socialist or communist government? The answer, of course, is no, but some people saw these as signs that it could happen, just as those same kinds of people today might argue that government healthcare would do the same thing. Yet, it's hard to imagine a modern world without the New Deal. Would you put your money in a non-FDIC-insured bank? Good luck finding a home loan that isn't government-backed. And if you're visiting a park this summer, you probably want to stay on the trails and use the restrooms at the trailhead. If you see this kind of legislation as creeping communism, and communism is inherently atheistic, you might also see these kinds of programs as a sign that Christianity itself was under fire even though it was signed into law by a man who was himself a Christian, a guy who came into office referencing the Bible at length. In our last episode, we talked about bootstrap theology, the idea that people should be able to pull themselves up, that poverty is a sign of laziness and immorality, while wealth is a sign that you're living a good, God-fearing life. Contrast that to the New Deal. You can see how tidbits of our theology shape the way we see the world and the place of government. What is a Christian response to an economic crisis? To social welfare, unemployment, health care? Use the vast resources of a country to take care of the people, or expect individuals and churches to handle it? Do you see within the outstretched hand of the New Deal a Christ-like example or proof of impending doom. Or maybe some amalgam of both. For those who looked at the New Deal and saw creeping atheistic communism a la the Soviet Union, the antidote was tying capitalism to religion, boosting the idea of a Christian nation to protect the American way. They created the National Prayer Breakfasts, coordinated media campaigns, built monuments to the Ten Commandments, attended Billy Graham rallies, and eventually began exporting Christianity, American style. We'll have those stories in the coming weeks. I'd love to know what you think of the New Deal. Was it creeping socialism or the right thing at the right time? Did it go far enough? Record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to me at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. I may even use your voice on the show. Also, check out my ebook, Cradle Robber, which is available most places you get ebooks. It's a romantic time travel thriller, perfect for summer beach reading. Our guest today was Justin Rosalino, and his book is Idiot Sojourning Soul. Thanks to everybody who helped make this episode possible. Truce is listener-supported, and by that, I mean I need your help financially to keep this thing going. Please donate a little bit of money, maybe each month, to help out. You could do that by going to our website at trucepodcast.com donate. I would really appreciate it if you would share this show with your friends and family. Word of mouth is the best. God willing, we'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Darren, and this is truce. I don't know if this is going to transfer to sound, but this is like the best feeling after a big adventure that's taking your shoes off. Oh, that's the stuff right there. <laughs>